O love divine, it is because my Lord, my love was crucified that we need to understand what we are about to hear. May the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ be the great template through which we can understand the truth about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The flamboyant Ted Turner. You've probably heard of him. He's the founder of CNN, Cable News Network, and TBS Turner Broadcasting System. The uh, celebrated owner of the Atlanta Braves. Ted Turner was once quoted saying these words. I've got the clipping right here. I don't want anybody to die for me. I've had a few drinks and a few girlfriends, and if that's going to put me in hell, then so be it. The clipping goes on. The famous Ted Turner on why Christ, Christ should not have bothered sacrificing his life. Christianity, he added, is, quote, a religion for losers, end quote. But we love you too, Ted. I mean, come on, I've had a few beers, I've had a few girlfriends, so I go to hell. So what? Isn't it amazing how glibly we toss the word hell around in our rather earthy American vocabulary? Having no clue as to what hell might be. We come to the midpoint in this tiny little mini-series, three parts long, The Truth About Hell. We're now ready for the story of hell. I want you to read that story for yourself. Be forewarned. This is not a bedtime story. It will not begin with the words, once upon a time, because the story is still future. Before it happens, we must read the story. So please open your Bible to the Bible's last book, the Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 20, the story of hell. Revelation chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible, oh boy, grab that Bible in front of you, the pew Bible here today. You, you're going to need it. You're going to track. You must track this story, please. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. Turn to the Bible's last book. That would be Revelation 20. Any translation you brought, fine. It works. Go to the Bible's last book. I know what some of you are thinking. Come on, Dwight. Why do we even have to talk about hell at all? I'll tell you why. Because it is the one teaching of Christianity that more than any other single claim of Christianity has turned more thinking men and women into atheists the world over. That's why. This teaching of God burning His children forever and ever has swollen the ranks of the lost. Why should I care? Because the character of God is on the line. That's why. Open your Bible with me, please, to the story of hell. Revelation chapter 20. Let's pick it up in verse 4. I'm in the today's New International Version. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God. Those are martyrs, obviously. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5. 
A little parenthetical insertion here. Oh, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So at the beginning of the thousand years, God's friends come to life. At the end of the thousand years, those who are lost come to life, as we'll see in just a moment. Verse 5 goes on. This is the first resurrection. Speaking of those who are sitting on the thrones, these martyrs. They came up in the first resurrection. Verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Even a cursory reading of this story of hell will lead us to some logical conclusions. And I wish you'd scribble those down right now. Pull out of your worship bulletin, please, today's study guide. Brand new study guide. Reach into your worship bulletin. If you don't find a worship bulletin, ushers, would you please right now make sure that everybody on the sanctuary level, everybody in the balcony, everybody in overflow, please make choir. I sure hope yeah, you've got your study guides good. Hold your hand up. If you didn't get a study guide, this is one. Trust me, for sure you want this study guide. By the way, those of you who are watching on television, we are delighted to have you. You've got, you've got to get into this journey with us. Go to our website and you can get the same study guide. Let me put it on the screen for you. Our website, www.pmchurch.tv. Once you find that website, go on the website. You're looking for a little mini-series entitled The Truth About Hell. It's only three parts long. We had our first part last week. Oh boy, if you didn't get last week, you've got to download the podcast. Title of last week's, MonsterGod.com. Don't miss last week's. Sets us up. Today's teaching, this is the one you're looking for, is entitled The Smoke of Their Torment. So when it says study guide right there beneath Smoke of Their Torment, you click there, you'll have the study guide. And by the way, don't miss the conclusion. Next week, my journey to purgatory and back. That's next week. We'll wrap up this little mini-series. I hope, I trust and pray that all three teachings will be especially blessed to you. All right, so this is Smoke of Their Torment. Here we go. You got the study guide now? Everybody have one? Keep your hand up. Can't wait for you. Let's go. Number one, what, 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 are the, what are the logical conclusions that we can draw from Revelation 20's The Story of Hell? Jot it down. Number one, there are two resurrections. Two resurrections. In fact, let's put that verse back up there. Let's put uh, Revelation 20, verse 6 back on the screen, please. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. How's it go next? The second death has no power of them, over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now look at, ladies and gentlemen, if they, call, if they call a resurrection first, you understand it's to differentiate from at least a second, at least a second. Come to find out there are two. And by the way, the apocalypse is not unique in teaching two resurrections. Take a look at this. Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's go to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. This is the Old Testament now. Some to everlasting life. That would be the saved. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. Two resurrections. One for the saved. One for the lost. Does Jesus agree with that? When the incarnate incarnate God was on earth? Oh boy, does He ever. Look at this. John chapter 5. Verse 28, Jesus speaking, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice, the Son of Man's voice, and they will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. That would be the saved. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned or judged, the Greek reads. That would be the lost. 
So, even a cursory reading, we know there are two resurrections. All right, jot down number two. There are two deaths. Number two, there are two deaths. We don't need to read verse six again. As we did just a moment ago, and you see right there, the second death has no power over them. Look, at if there is a second death, then that means there is a first death. Wouldn't that be logical? But of course, there are at least two deaths. There are two deaths. Now, the first death the Bible describes, in fact, jot this down in your study guide. The first death is one from which you can be awakened, right in that word awakened. And then notice this quotation, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself, this is the second coming, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise. That's first resurrection. All right. Oh, by the way, this is the resurrection everybody's hoping and praying for. Early yesterday morning, I walked through Rose Hill Cemetery. Try to imagine all these, all these graves just bursting open. This is what we live for. But there is a second resurrection. Jot it down. The second death, the second death is one from which you will never be awakened. Now, you may not have known this verse was in the Bible, but it is. Jeremiah 51, 57. They will sleep forever and not awake. That would be death number two. Oh, boy, if, if I have to die, let me die just death number one, please. Not death number two. No, no, no. All right, number three. These are conclusions. Number three, just even a cursory reading. Number three, jot it down. Hell is called the second death. Last week we were at the foot of the cross. Last week the paradigm shifted for us. Don't miss last week's teaching. MonsterGod.com. But hell is called the second death. You making that up, Dwight? Nope. Take a look at this verse. That's, uh, I want to begin reading actually in verse 11. Would that be okay? Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That would be Almighty God. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades. Technical word for the grave. All right. Death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them. And everyone was judged according to what they had done. Now, I'm going to put verse 14 on the screen. Here we go. Verse 14. Then death and Hades, the grave, were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, read this carefully. The lake of fire is the second death. All whose names, verse 15, all whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. Ladies and gentlemen. Hell results in a death from which you will never be awakened. Hell, the lake of fire, is the second death. Number four. You can draw this conclusion as well. Hell, this one comes as a surprise to most Christians. Now hold on to your pew. If you've never heard this before, hell takes place on earth. Is it there, Dwight? Yeah, look at verse 9. This is after the uh, second resurrection. All the lost are raised on the planet. And they, verse 9, the lost, marched across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people. That would be the city he loves. That's the New Jerusalem. Apparently it's descended to earth. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet, two religious institutions, 
in history had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ladies and gentlemen, please note it clearly. The fire that comes down, which is the fire of hell, happens on earth. There's no place out in the universe somewhere where, there's, where, where it's called hell. No, 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 no. Hell is here. Not yet, but it's here. Right here on planet Earth. All right, number five. Jot this down as well. You can just draw these. Just one reading and you can draw these conclusions. Number five. Hell is terminated when God recreates a new heaven and a new earth. So this lake of fire consumes the entire planet. The whole ecosystem, the atmosphere, everything just just purified. And finally, the God on that great white throne throws His hands up and He says, let's start over. And that's exactly what happens. Hell is in the last verse of Revelation 20, the lake of fire. We read it just a moment ago. Now go to the first verse of Revelation 21. Then, after the lake of fire, then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Drop down to verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Hell comes to an end when God recreates this earth. You see that? Do you know what that means? Two final conclusions. No text now. Just based on what we've read, two conclusions. Number six, jot it down. Hell cannot be now because it takes place on earth in the future. It can't be now. It can't be now. And finally, number seven. Hell cannot be forever because it takes place on earth and is followed by God's new creation. You can't have an eternal hell when hell transpires on this planet that God has promised to restore to its Edenic, its Garden of Eden beauty one day. Can't be. You say, hey, wait, 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 time out, Dwight. Not so fast. Wait a minute. We just read this a moment ago in verse 10. It says, "And and they suffered, they were tormented forever and ever. You just skipped over that, boy. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. And by the way, you said, hey, 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 what are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus talks about everlasting fire. Jesus talks about eternal fire. What are you going to do with those? Fair enough. Let's take a look at it. Let's do this. Let's take a look. Let's go back to uh, the Gospel of St. Mark. A little tiny Gospel there at the beginning of the New Testament, right after Matthew. Find the Gospel of Mark. This would be page 681 in your pew Bible. Find Mark chapter 9. Take a look at this. You're right. You are absolutely right. Here are the words of Jesus Himself. If you have a red letter Bible, these words are bright red. All right? Mark chapter 9. Drop down near the end of the chapter to verse 47. Mark 9, 47. Jesus speaking. And if your eye causes you to stumble, plug it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Whoa! Verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I told you, what? Fire that cannot be quenched goes forever and ever. Amen. Let me tell you something, by the way, uh, about that word for hell that you just read. In the Greek, it's Gehenna. 
It's actually a transliteration of the Hebrew that means Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Gehenna was, an, was, a, was a 600-foot drop gorge right beside the walls of Jerusalem, south and west of Jerusalem. This gorge drops down 600 feet to a rocky defile at the bottom. At the bottom of that gorge, King Manasseh, the wicked king, you remember he used to burn his children to death as sacrifices to the god of Molech? You remember that? That took place at the bottom of Gehenna. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that when Rome sacked the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the bodies were stacked from the bottom of that gorge upward. And so Gehenna was a nickname for hell. It was simply code language for horror. Horror. Jesus talks about Gehenna. But listen, we, we, we need to probe what Jesus is thinking here. We need to look at Jesus' Bible. And I remind you, Jesus' Bible is not the New Testament. There was no New Testament. The only Bible Jesus had was the Old Testament. And as it turns out, Jesus has just quoted here in Mark 9... Words of the ancient prophet Isaiah. So let's figure out what is going on here. Go back to Isaiah. Don't read this on the screen. It'll be there. But I want you to see it in your Bible. Isaiah 66. The very last line of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. Take a look at this. You say, come on, Dwight. I don't, want to, I don't have to look up all these verses and talk about hell. My friend, the character of God is on the line. You better get it straight. What God's Word teaches about hell. Otherwise, like atheists across this nation, you may kiss it off and walk away and say, I can't handle a God like that. There can't be a God. Isaiah 66. All right, let's, get a, let's just pick it up before we get to the last line. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Isaiah 66, 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. Now, he's talking about the new earth now. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all people on the new earth will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Now, here comes. Here comes. Verse 24. And they will go out on the new earth and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to the whole human race. What's going on here? Scholars believe that Isaiah is recalling a stunning moment of history, of Judah's history, in his own lifetime. And that was when the Assyrian forces came and besieged the tiny little capital of Judah, the, the city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah is absolutely panicked. And he races to the temple and he throws himself down before God. And he says, oh, God of Israel, you have got to save us from the enemy. There is no way out. We are, we, we are destroyed. That night, mysteriously, the entire army of the Assyrians is killed. Isaiah actually talks about it. And, and we'll put it up on the screen here. Isaiah chapter 37. Let's put it on the screen. What happened that night? Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. I mean, can you imagine 185,000 corpses around your little village or your city? You would never forget that as long as you lived. 
Isn't it amazing that using that historical incident as a metaphor, Isaiah, at the very end of his book, describes the saved in the new earth looking out and saying, Oh, look at all those dead bodies. In fact, I wish you'd write this down. Jot it down. Please note, the bodies are already dead. Jot it down. The bodies are already dead. The worms, that would be the maggots, fill in both. Have you ever driven by a possum one day, dead possum, poor possum? Drive by three days later and the possum's gone, just a little skeleton. What happened? The maggots got a hold of it. It's called decomposition. The bodies are already dead. The worms slash maggots of decomposition are already at work. And the refuse burning fires are already in progress. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a picture of pain. It is a picture of permanence. What did the Savior mean? What did the Savior mean when he quotes Isaiah to talk about hell? Because both of them speak of this fire that cannot be quenched. What's that mean? Well, again, we need to let the Bible interpret itself. Let's find out what that means. Notice how Isaiah uses the identical language in his own book. That would be the safest to see. Hey, Isaiah, do you use the same language? I want you to see this, so don't do it on the screen. Go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 34. So just go back a few chapters from 66 back to 34. Isaiah 34. Notice, and God is speaking about Israel's pesky little neighbor, Edom, that was forever guerrilla attacking them. They become enemies of Israel. God's speaking about Edom. This would be Isaiah 34, verse 8. Verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Speaking of Edom, verse 9. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch her dust into burning sulfur. Now, burning means fire. Her land will become blazing pitch. The whole land will be on fire. It, verse 10, it will not be quenched day or night. Its smoke will rise forever and ever. When John writes the apocalypse and he describes the smoke of their torment is ascending forever and ever, day and night they have no rest, he's taking it straight from here. He's pulling it straight from here. Now, does that mean the fire in Edom is still burning? Because it's Jordan today, the nation Jordan. Is Jordan on fire? Did God even mean for us to conclude that? Look at verse 11. The desert owl and the screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. Now, I left out the end of verse 10, which says the land will be desolate. But the birds are coming back. This is not a continuous fire from which no life can, can enter. No, no. Once it's over, the birds will come back. Do you see? That's unquenchable. The, the identical language. The fire will not be quenched. By the way, Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 27, uses the identical Hebrew language to describe the fire that God will do set one day to the gates of Jerusalem. Now, I've been to Jerusalem. I've seen those gates. And trust me, they are not still burning. But God said, I'll send an unquenchable fire and burn your gates. And He did. But it's not still burning today. What's going on here? Look at your study guide. Question. Does unquenchable fire mean a fire that burns forever? Answer. No. It means a divine fire judgment that cannot be humanly quenched or reversed. That's what it means. I'll give you a moment to make sure you get that down. It's a divine fire judgment. That cannot humanly 
be stopped. Oh, so jot it down, will you? The next one. Worms, therefore, and unquenchable fire are not a metaphor of pain, but of permanence. Fire's not burning in Edom. Jerusalem isn't on fire today. You say, yeah, but Dwight, didn't Jesus talk about everlasting fire? I mean, eternal fire, not just... Didn't He actually use those words? He sure did. Let's take, take a look at two instances where Jesus uh, spoke those words. Here is Matthew's equivalent of what we just read in uh, Mark. It's a little different, so that's why we're going here. Matthew 18, verse 8. If your hand or foot, Jesus speaking, causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Why? It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. Whoa. Not just saying hell now. He's saying eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Why? It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. So hell equals eternal fire. That's clear. One more reference from the, from the Lord Jesus, from the Savior. This is the final parable He told before His execution. Matthew 25. You remember the sheep and the goats? The king now is talking to the goats. Then he, the king, will say to those on his left, that would be the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Please note for whom the fire has been prepared. Prepared for whom? For the devil and his angels. Final line of the parable, verse 46. Then they, the lost, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what are we going to do with the Savior's somber? I mean, you can't, you can't duck this one. He's talking eternal fire. Well, we've got to let the Bible interpret itself again. That's the, that's the, that's the only way you can study the Bible. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Of course you do. You remember when God, God came down with a couple of angel companions as strangers? Abraham took them in. God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. Abraham goes to the bluff overlooking Sodom in the distance. And he says, God, and he gets them all, remember, he gets them all the way down to ten. Will you spare Sodom for ten righteous people? God says, you got it. I'll spare it for ten. But when God goes and examines himself, for himself, he can't even find five righteous. Just Lot, his wife, and the two daughters. And early the next morning, the angels have to manhandle, have to physically drag them out. And as soon as they are dragged out, the heavens explode and fire burning sulfur falls on that impenitent city. Abraham wakes up. He goes to the bluff where he and God bartered over Sodom. And in the distance, his heart sinks. In the distance, a plume of smoke. That's all that's left. Let's take the story of Sodom. Jude 7. Put it on the screen for you. By the way, I want you to go to your Bible. Underline. Your, look at all these texts in your Bible. Say, oh, maybe, maybe the pastor slipped a little something on us. Okay, check it out. You go home this afternoon. Mark it up in your Bible. Let's put Jude 7 on the screen. In a similar way. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And what happened? They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. You want an example of what hell will be? They serve. Just go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Are Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? They are not. Archaeologists have found the site. They have found actual ash in that desert sand, there is no burning, trust me, today. In fact, God says, 
You can do this, Dwight, just using my Bible. You don't have to give little archaeological reports. Watch this. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to what? By burning them to ashes. That's what eternal fire does. It just, shoo, gone. Ashes. And he made them an example. He made them an example. Jot it down, will you please? Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the punishment of eternal fire, burning them to ashes. Hey, wait a minute, Dwight. Then what does eternal mean when it's attached to fire? Watch this. Jot it down. Eternal fire is a momentary fire whose source is the eternal, capital E, whose source is the eternal and whose results are eternal. It is a graphic, keep writing, it is a graphic depiction of the permanence of the results, not the pain of the event. In fact, it is no accident that the Bible uses burning sulfur and ascending smoke of their torment imagery from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. John weaves it straight into the apocalypse to describe this day and night forever and ever destruction. It's a metaphor for the destruction of hell. And by the way, that is precisely how the Bible portrays hell's destruction to the wicked. Hold on now. I need you to see this. We're going to get your pen. We won't even bother to look this up. Let me put it on the screen for you. Psalm 37. Every time there's a word in yellow, would you scribble it down after the... You have the reference there. You can study these later. But every time there's a word in yellow, by the way, the word in yellow will depict permanent, permanent, permanent. All right. Oh, so Psalm 37, verse 1, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Why? For like the grass, they will soon wither. That means just gone. They will soon wither like green plants. They will soon die away. This is gone. Watch again. Let's go to uh, verse 10. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Jot it down. No more. They don't go somewhere in the universe and keep living forever and ever. They'll be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Let's go to verse 20. But the wicked will perish, though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field. Notice this. They will be consumed. There's another yellow word. Permanence. They'll be consumed. They will go up in smoke. Ladies and gentlemen, when the smoke goes up, it's over. That's all that wispily ascends into heaven. It's over. One more is there? Yep, verse 38. But all sinners will be destroyed. There will be no future. It's over. Second death. Gone. By the way, the very last book of the Old Testament makes the identical point. Let's put it up here. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. God is speaking. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. I tell you what, when you're stubble, that's it. That's, it's just gone. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Keep going. Watch this. Not a root or a branch will be left. Satan, the root, his branches, his followers, all gone. All gone. Drop down to verse 3 now. Then you will trample on the wicked. Could this be clearer? They will be ashes under your feet. They're not going on living somewhere else. It's over. They are ashes 
under your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. What's the point? The point is, it looks awfully permanent to me. I know what you're thinking. Oh, but you know what, Dwight? Okay, so God, so God go ahead, goes ahead and just blots out the, the, uh, the wicked. But I'll bet you the devil burns forever and ever. Amen. You want to see about the devil? Let's put it on the screen. Ezekiel chapter 28. God is speaking directly to Satan here. By your many sins, this is verse 18. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. Keep going. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you, Satan, to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. And all the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have, be, you have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Ladies and gentlemen, any way you cut it, jot it down. The Bible describes the destruction of the wicked, both human and angelic, as total annihilation. Make sure you get the right number of ends. Total annihilation. Come on. You remember the story of hell that we read just a moment ago? Where is hell? It's here. You can't keep burning forever and ever. Because God says, when the fire's done, I'm creating a brand new Garden of Eden. A new earth and new heavens. Can't be here. Hence the words, jot this down, forever, eternal, everlasting, must describe the permanence of judgment rather than the progression of judgment. It's not talking about how long it takes for God to do it. It's talking about the results will be permanent. Keep writing. The Bible says the wages of sin is eternal death, not eternal dying. Jesus, when He said they will go to their punishment, He did not say they will go to their eternal punishing. It's an eternal punishment. The results are forever. My friend Samuel Bakioki, he died just a couple of months ago. His book just came out. He gave me a copy. In his book, Popular Beliefs, Sam quotes William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, back during the early 40s. It's in your study guide. Put it on the screen. If man had not imported the Greek and unbiblical notion of the natural indestructibility of the individual soul and then read the New Testament with that already in their minds, they would have drawn from the New Testament a belief not in everlasting torment, but in annihilation. It is the fire that is called Ionion. That's the Greek word for everlasting. It is the fire that is everlasting, not the life cast into it. End quote. Oh, my friends, if only we had remembered how Jesus instructed us to address God. When Jesus taught us how to pray, did He say we ought to pray this way? Our judge who art in heaven. Huh? Our king who art in heaven. Would that be fine? What's wrong with it? Our Lord, who art in heaven. He didn't even say, our God, who art in heaven. Are you kidding? When Jesus said, hey, you want to pray? You want to address the Almighty on the throne of the universe? Here's what I want you to pray. Our Father. Call Him Father, which art in heaven. And just a few breaths later, in the same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, look, if you who are evil, Matthew 7, verse 11, if you who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. Jot this down. How much more? How much more will your Father in Heaven 
Give good gifts to those who ask Him. Hey, here's a question for you. Do fathers and mothers punish their children? Yes or no? Yeah, I have imaginary scars on my posterior to prove that, in fact, they indeed do. I said imaginary. The pain is still real. I still suffer. Of course, of course parents discipline their children. I have two wonderful children. Let's say Kirk and Chrissy are, are very young. And before leaving the home, I say to, I say to Kirk and Chrissy, now look it, mom has just, built, has just baked this, this plate full of lovely chocolate chip cookies. But I'm putting saran wrap over the top of it. And I don't want you to touch it until I get home tonight. And then we'll all have a chocolate chip cookie apiece tonight. Is that understood? Yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. I go and come home in the evening. And guess what? Two chocolate chip cookies are missing. I call the children in. I grill them hard. And I draw confessions from both their guilty hearts. Each ate a chocolate chip cookie. Now, I want to teach a lesson to them. Of course I'm going to spank them. Here's my question to you. How long should I spank them? One hour? What's a, what, you got a problem with that? No wonder you turned out the way you did. One hour? No. How about two hours? How about five hours? How about if I spank them all night long just to make sure they never do this again? Nope, 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 nope. You know what? If I spanked my children for five hours, you'd have me turned in so fast for child abuse, it'd make your head swim. Isn't that right? You're not supposed to punish your children just because you're madder than hell at them. Oops. Sorry. Part of my language. But that is precisely what people believe hell is. God is so mad that my kids didn't choose me. I'm going to punish you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Ladies and gentlemen, are there rebellious children in this life? Yeah. Yep. 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 Of course. And it may be that one day your child will leave your home and run away and never come back again. God forbid. But children are free to go their way, are they not? In order for parental love to be genuine love, the parent must not only give the child the right to say yes, you must give your child the right to say no. And if one day your child stands in the distance with his haughty arms folded tight in defiance against you, I will never come to your home again. What are you going to do then? What will you do then? Is there a parent here who would choose to douse that rebellious child with some sort of flammable liquid and then ignite the liquid? And then every 24 hours through intravenous injection, keep that boy alive so that the pain will go on and on and on and on. Not just a day, not just a year, not just a lifetime. It will go on forever and ever. Now will you ever disobey me again? Oh, my, my Lord, what have we done? Done to the truth about God. You tell me. You tell me. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. What have we done to him? It is no wonder that thinking men and women in the West have rejected the child-burning God that Christianity has espoused. And have walked away and have said, I will never, I will never believe in God if that is who He is. In the name of Calvary's God, How under heaven could we believe that He will torment His children forever and ever? It is no wonder today that a growing host of Christian scholars are turning their backs on the teaching of their childhood and are rejecting the notion that God burns sinners forever and ever. Some luminary, some bright light, such as called the greatest preacher in the English language in the 20th century, Anglican preacher John R. W. Stott, the theologian and writer Oscar Kuhlman, the lawyer and theologian Edward Fudge, among others, the Canadian theologian Clark Pinnock. In fact, let me put Pinnock's words. We'll end with this. Let me put it on the screen for you. It's there in your study guide. There is a powerful moral revulsion against the traditional doctrine of the nature of hell. Everlasting torture is intolerable from a moral point of view because it pictures God acting like a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for his enemies. He whom he does not even allow to die. Hitler let them die, not God. How can one love a God like that, Pinnock asks. I suppose one might be afraid of him, but could we love and respect him? Would we want to strive to be like Him in this mercilessness? Surely the idea of everlasting conscious torment raises the problem of evil to impossible heights. End quote. Whoa! Our Father, which art in heaven. Saying, Dwight, you telling me there's no suffering in hell? I didn't say that. We'll look at what hell will be like in the final piece next week. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The young preacher was in love, they were engaged to be married. He was counting down the days when tragedy struck. Mysteriously, he was smitten with blindness. Eyes that cannot now see, yet a heart that goes on loving that girl until a twin tragedy struck. On that day when she stepped into his darkness, cleared her throat, and announced that she had searched her heart and she could not find it within herself to marry a blind man. As her footfall echoed for the last time out of his life, George Matheson, in his agony, wept until a few hours later he groped and found a pen and scribbled down the words, 
O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe, that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Our Father, who art in heaven, is about a love that will not let go. Dear Father, we have been so wrong about you. It is no wonder your children have run away from home. But it's not too late. The good news of this love that will not let us go. It can be told. We can share it with those we love. Jesus said you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Oh, Father, may your love set all of us free. While there is still time. In the name of Jesus. Who died to tell us the truth about you. Amen.